0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 13 of Through the Eyes of Joey. I hope you all are doing well. It is Thursday, March 26th. It's almost Friday. I'm sure you all are very happy about that. Um, However, it's not like many of you have been out in the jungle, as it were, because most of us are uh, relegated to the comforts of our home, which isn't too bad, which is that relegation and comfort is, you know, kind of a, an opposite. But, you know, I'm not really relegated to my home, to the, to the interiors of my home. It's been not too bad for me. Um, I'm, an, I'm considered a bit of an older citizen. And so I've been very cautious about the kind of contact I make with the outside world. But uh, nonetheless, I hope you all are doing well and you all are feeling good. Um, At the last episode, um, I wanted to uh, kind of recap that with you. But this episode that we will start with will begin our journey uh, of a time back to a location where there was a lot of wild and wonderful life events which took place. It was in Chicago and even beyond Chicago for the Bowden family, um, Bowden-Egan family. And even for the Sobel family, which we haven't even touched upon, um, those kinds of episodes will be uh, presented in uh, in another series outside of Through the Eyes of Joey. At our last episode, I was talking to you, and I cut off pretty quickly, but I, I wanted to just end it uh, with uh, Joey talking about uh, the body of a woman who had fallen about five feet from Helen Bowden when she was walking down the street. <clears throat> and the uh, the woman who fell from the roof had been stabbed, and she was uh, DOA, as they say, dead on arrival on the pavement. But I suspect that it's because Helen Bowden wasn't just do-do-do-do-do-do, walking down the street and, you know, here falls a dead body five feet in front of her. Um... I probably venture i would venture to guess she had been called to the scene of some kind of verbal altercation happening on in a building or on a rooftop somebody had called something in uh somebody probably was yelling at somebody and they were having a fight, and maybe she responded she was responding to the to the uh domestic violence call and Maybe she happened to be in the vicinity at the time or whatever it was. Who knows? But nonetheless, um, that was where I left off at the last episode. And I was telling you as as I was kind of talking about that, my mother was mentioning that the, the woman was dead and Helen Bowden then uh, looked up to the top of the building and she surmised that, of course, the woman fell from maybe not a window, but the roof, or she didn't know. So she went up the stairs to the top of the building on the roof where she found the body of a gentleman who had also been stabbed. It looked like perhaps he stabbed himself, and he was dead as well. And then Joey talks about the fact that the gentleman, uh, the victim was uh, Filipino. And that the woman who had been killed and, and fell from the roof was a Caucasian woman. Now, I know it's cringeworthy, it, the way it's presented, in terms of the fact that Joey then talks about the fact that <clears throat> these uh, gentlemen were unable to have their wives come to America. Uh And they didn't know how long it would be until they would be allowed to have their wives immigrate into the United States. Um, And then Joy proceeds to to say that they liked the blondes. That was her quote. Uh, Her quote is this. She wrote, they liked the blondes, noted, and could be ruthlessly jealous. They had no qualms in letting the gal know it. They had trouble at the time quite a few in the east chicago area i don't know when they the wives were allowed to come over but it was no grand rush end quote. the they that she's using is she's that's referring to the filipino the uh, the filipino community and i just want to touch upon that because as i had said in previous episodes in the in this time in the in the 20s and 30s, we were having an influx of a lot of immigrants coming from all over the the globe. And they were funneling through Ellis Island in New York. And then many of them seeking better opportunity, less competition, would then keep moving west, out of New York. And it brought them to Chicago. Um, Now, I have to say in 1849 the gold rush prompted many people who were now in the midwest to go further west so they even left the midwest to go west uh for gold but it in the in the time that joey was growing up in chicago it wasn't a big thing i mean really to have what they had set up for the different ethnicities in neighborhoods. It wasn't a big thing to say, you know, there was the black neighborhood, there was the Ukrainian, the Ukrainians had their own neighborhood. The Italians had their own neighborhood. The Irish had their own neighborhood. The Polish had their own neighborhood. I mean, the Russian, I mean, that's how you identified in those days. And you identified that way by, by the, where you lived, And if you were an immigrant who came to America through Ellis Island and found yourself in Chicago, and let's say, for example, you were Hungarian, like my parents, my father's family, uh, the Sobels were Hungarian, they would find the Hungarian neighborhood. They would find a place to live in the Hungarian neighborhood. They couldn't really speak English. They were speaking Hungarian, Magyar. They were speaking their mother tongue <clears throat> in terms of specifically related to my father's family. My great-grandfather, Samuel Sobel, spoke Magyar, the Hungarian language. He spoke German, Yiddish. And so that was, English was not his first language it wasn't his second or his third english was going to be his fourth language well this is a little sticky so these families were would come in and into america <clears throat> and they would find their neighborhood where they could quietly learn the american culture and they would also quietly learn how to speak english in the protective cocoon, if if you will, the protective cocoon of their ethnic neighborhood. So in those days, it wasn't much of a deal to say, which they did if you read some of the research, which feels not very politically correct, by the way, but it is the way it was then. You could be somewhere, and you're Irish, you could be somewhere in Chicago, and somebody might say, "What are you doing in this neighborhood you know, you should you should uh you should go to your Irish neighborhood and that was just a way that they talked to each other and so when I read from the last episode about the Filipino uh felon, she keeps talking about they 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 had trouble at the time they could be ruthlessly jealous, they didn't know when their wives were coming over uh It was no grand rush. Now that I don't understand, I'm not really sure what Joey's trying to say there. That it was no grand rush for the for the Filipino man to bring his wife over. I don't know if that was. She's making a statement there, saying that it was no grand rush for America to allow them to come over because, I mean, they their wives could come here, you know, at the same time. That their husbands did, um <clears throat> but perhaps Joey is just trying to say that, in terms of for the man himself, he was in no big rush to get his wife here. doesn't matter who she is or what what ethnicity she is. perhaps Joey's saying the these this particular ethnicity uh, didn't really have a desired to bring their wives over from whatever country that they had come from. So I'm, you know, it's hard to be objective or subjective there because I, I'm not really sure how she's tying that in. Anyway, be that as it may, that's where I left off. So I'm going to continue. Joey writes, quote, although, and I will say she writes in her handwriting, a- she spells it A-L-T-H-O, alto, not although, it's alto, and I will talk about that in a second. Although my mother probably knew about the Hirons case, it was a crime much later in her career. They That crime, that murder, those murders were associated with the before I kill again, murders. Uh, they were on Tui Avenue, and Rogers Park, uh, the murders. They were in the north side, but not in Lincolnwood, Illinois. Uh, Lincolnwood would be northwest, and I don't, you know, I don't remember that famous murder case. It was after I left for Hollywood, for the Hollywood Studio Club. But many suburbs developed, you know, going west, and perhaps Tui. Avenue extended into Lincolnwood Avenue later. But the Tui area I I knew it was up a few blocks the the murders were up a few blocks from Loyola and on the lake Lake Michigan." End quote. So I just want to touch upon the use of how Josephine spells the word although. She spells it A L T H O I found this very sweet and endearing when I looked at her writing because, for example, the Irish spelling of Thomas, or the pronunciation Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, when you go back in history and you research the census, even in Ireland, on the baptismal books and things of that nature, Thomas is spelled T H O S. Tos. Thomas is Tos. Well, Alto, the way she spells A L T H O, is almost the same kind of abbreviation of Tos, Thomas, T H O S. And the historical note on this is that the use of the word A or writing it, A L T H O, as Josephine writes Alto, it is an old style. Uh, way of writing out although a l t h o u g h, but the old style was written and spoken in that way, and the use in the spelling was prominent at the end of the nineteenth century, and uh, one of the spellings uh, which has been talked about has was the English writing, like an English version um it was a it was used as a simplified spelling version of the word although now president theodore roosevelt and the chicago tribune among others were fully on board with this kind of english style old english style writing and um although the use of the word a l t h o it did well for a while, um, but after a couple of promising decades at the start of the 20th century, it its spelling and use pretty much fell from favor. But we see that even in 1998, when Josephine is writing out her life memories, her childhood memories, she's still using it as she writes her family testimony in longhand. So, yeah, so it was the English writing uh, the English writing public, uh, by various spelling reformers, would uh, allow this to be used. So I thought that was interesting. Um, The second historical note here that I wanted to take some time to talk about is my mother, Joey, is talking about the Hiren's case, the H-E-I-R-E-N-S case, the William George Hirons' case in Chicago was a murder case about a serial killer. Uh, Hirons was his last name. He had confessed to three murders of females, uh, starting when he was 17 years old. He was called the, quote, lipstick killer, end quote, after he had left a scrawled message and lipstick at one of the murder scenes. And the crimes took place from about... 1945 to 1946. But the message that he scrawled in lipstick on the mirror said, stop me before I kill again. So it was the first case in national history where a killer left a message at a scene of a crime or a murder. And also the first case of not only that, but the use of lipstick Uh, to write the message. Um, One of the family's cousins by the name of Patsy Majewski, who lives in Chicago, had believed that my grandmother, Helen Bowden, like many police officers at the time of the murders, would have worked on the case as it involved a kidnapped child. Um, It was around the Rogers Park area, and this is one of the residence locations that Helen Bowden had lived in at the time. But I can find no evidence by source documentation that can confirm uh, Patsy Majewski's conjecture that Helen Bowden was involved in the Hirons uh, murder case uh, or murders. And to that point, for the record, Helen Bowden retired from the Chicago Police Department, police force, as a policewoman. Uh, who had been, worked in uh, crimes prevention, she retired in 1947. So th- the span of the crimes, the, the the murders, and the Hirons murder case was from 1945 to 1946. And she was at the end of her career. And this is a pretty high-profile case. This is a hot-file case. And generally speaking, these cases went to men to handle male detectives and It was still a time when the police department was very male dominated uh it was dominated for a very, very long time after helen retired obviously uh, and in those days, one of the biggest problems that women were having trying to kind of break ground if you will into the into the male dominated police department was that men in the police department really felt that women didn't need to see the uglier sides of life they didn't want them to women who were on the police force even some of the first police women Marie Owens and Alice Clement They still were relegated to truancy, uh, prostitution, um, dealing with uh, juvenile crime, uh, things of that nature, because the the male police management just felt that women were nurturers and had a place in the world and in society, they could do well working in a, a police fashion or a capacity by dealing with the things in nature that women are best dealing with, children and other women. Not so much handling the crimes of, say, for example, this case, the Hiron's case, which is the the savage murder of you know women. I mean the the male the male police management and the, the beat cop the male beat cop they didn't want their they didn't want the women in the police department to be a part of this and it wasn't just so much for the power of it it wasn't so much for the fame that the male uh, uh, police officers were trying to obtain from these hot file cases. It really was a mindset in those days that women really were best used in areas that would have would accentuate their best qualities, which would be nurturing and et cetera, like I said, so you know, in defense of men on this uh in the police department that was just that was the way it was then now that's not to say that was right, okay, because really, a lot of police women, after Helen Bowden retired in nineteen forty seven started to take over these cases, and they could handle them just as ethically um just as objectively and just as professionally as their male counterpart could. And the body of a female who had been murdered carried no different sense of decency or indecency for a female police detective than it did if it was a male body who was murdered. It was a male who was murdered. It was the same thing. And once women got into the field of homicide investigation and were working side by side, they were working side by side with men, and men got to see that women could be very, very objective, calm, cool, collected, and could conduct an investigation without any kind of, and believe you me, they used this word, female hysteria involved, end quote, uh, which was the words used in, in some of the police management uh, issues surrounding women in in crimes like this. They were worried that the female would become hysterical overseeing the, uh, the body of a murdered female. Once women were working side by side in homicide with men and men would watch these female detectives, not wince or flinch at the body of a murdered woman, they realized there was a there was equality here, that women were as just as professional in handling the homicide of anybody, uh, and it didn't have anything to do with the inability of a female to be professional at all times. So Helen Bowden, my grandmother, was not involved in the Hiron's murder case at all. Um, And so I just wanted to put that out there. If anybody can do some research and find out differently for that, that's great. But I'd love to hear. But um, I I couldn't find anything. Okay, I'm going to carry on now with Joey's written testimony. Oh, yes, my sister, Mary Bowden. Mary Barton my Mary, my sister Mary was born in 1909 and she died in 1986 Mary was born 12 years before me on October 25th 1909 my mother Helen you know never talked about marriage to us at all but my mother was very very disappointed for a time when my sister Mary got married to George, her husband. My sister was under contract to see at Warner, Studio, Warner's, Warner Brothers Studios. That was big. She actually got a contract. And she was doing well. She was one of the original gold diggers with the uh, Busby Berkeley uh, movie production. She starred, along with the other gold diggers, in a movie called Footlight Parade on 42nd Street. There is a picture of my sister Mary coyly standing in the background behind the movie star, James Cagney. My sister had potential in Hollywood. Oh, I'd tell you if I'd had that chance. I wouldn't have given it up. But when Mary fell in love with George Garcia, it was just accepted. I mean, she was done with Hollywood. My mother, boy, she had career ambitions for us. She'd give us all the pitfalls and safety tips. And she would tell us what her expectations were for us. She directed us as to how to be successful, independent women. But my mother never complained at our choices eventually. You know, my dad, he was an equalizer. Like I said before, my dad was calm and always gave us girls good advice. There was not a a lot of demonstrative kind of love from my parents to my sister and me. Not a lot of physical affection. I would always hug my daddy. Oh, I'd hug him so hard around the neck. And my mommy, too. My mom. I would hold my mom and hug my mom. But, I mean, there was love. But there wasn't a lot of physical affection in those days. It, maybe wasn't a part of their generation. My mother really never talked a lot about motherhood. I mean, she expected a lot from Mary, my sister, and then she expected a lot from me. She would have made a great stage mother. She wasn't a tyrant, though. And knowing her, she prayed a lot. Mother worked. During Mary's childhood. And if Mary was home, she would babysit me. And according to my sister Mary, the convents may have boarded and cared for her and myself. Maybe it probably would have been the Good Shepherd and the Carmelite Order where Mary was sent off to live there at that boarding school. But that's where we went, you know, because my mother had to work. But when I did see my sister, years later, if she would come and visit, I was always so happy to see her. Now, my life, Joey Bowden, I, I did live in a convent, a boarding school, and nursery school with nuns. I came home to live at about five years old. At seven years of age, I had a life-threatening illness, black diphtheria. I was in the hospital for two months. Oh, I wanted to get out so badly. I'd I'd already been in a place where I couldn't come home. But I remember being in the hospital... I couldn't come home because of the diphtheria. And I was waiting for the Easter bunny, and a nurse opened the window. And the Easter bunny didn't leave a basket for me on Easter at the hospital window. Nothing was there. But the basket was left at home, at the front door. <laughs> oh, It was the age of innocence so lacking today. I used to see a regular dentist in Chicago. I remember that. It was a dentist by the name of Jack Morris. I had good teeth. I was lucky to have that. My mother took me to the dentist. But our lifestyle was somewhat like today. I mean, I didn't care so much about having a working mother. I was very proud of my mother. I knew she was happy doing this work, police work. Dad backed my mother completely. I was a latchkey kid. I had my first key at nine years old. It's a little different from today. I, neighbors watched, and I was never allowed to bring anyone home. I could go outside and ride a bike. But I was never allowed to go anywhere unless Mom was there. And if something happened, like I snuck off or did something, a little birdie would tell my mother what I did. And it was because neighbors would tell her, because they were watching out for me. But I did have one advantage. I obeyed my mother. I never wanted to disappoint her. I have childhood memories from about 13 years of age where my mother took me down to the police station and she put me in a jail cell so I could feel what it was like to be in a jail. (laughs) And she told me that that was where I'd be going if I didn't behave myself. (laughs) I really can't remember how the exact incident started, but I think she said that I was not a disobedient child overall, but little things had happened. Like the time I remember I went on a picnic with my friend. And from the outset, my mother disapproved. I'd asked her, Can I go on a picnic with my friend today? And my mother thought about it, and she said, No no to the picnic. I couldn't go on the picnic. So later, later in the day, my mom gets home from work. And my dad had been home all day from work. I guess he didn't even go to work that day at all. But my dad had said I could go on the picnic when I asked him. But I didn't tell my dad about the fact that my mother had already vetoed me going I didn't tell my dad that. So my mom, the policewoman, didn't speak to me for days. I got the silent treatment. And a field trip to a jail cell for lying. (laughs) Oh, man, I felt so sorry for my daddy. He didn't know. He didn't know that my mother had said no to me. And I had put him in the middle. And when... When I was about, I guess it was evening when I was about 15, I was sitting and reading by my front bedroom window. This is another time I was, I have a memory. Uh, it was a, maybe a, a warm evening. And uh, I was reading, like I said, by my bedroom window. It w- my window was unlocked the, and the shade was up. And in those days, you know, if it's warm, you open the window, you know, no air conditioning. Anyway, I had a slip, you know, an underslip on, you know, when nobody was around and my parents or such. My parents were down on the sun porch that evening. It was hot. And something made me, something made me like, go and look down the hallway. I heard a thump, like thum, in the in the dining room area. And I yelled. And I looked. I yelled because I saw the leg of a man entering through the window of our dining room. And I yelled, "I'm a police officer." And he started to scoot. And then just just then I said, "I have a gun." And if you come back, I'll blow your head off. <laughs> there were two men in all that. Just, oh, can you imagine? I just wanted to faint. They were looking through the window there in Evanston, Illinois. But anyway, there were two men that were going around that neighborhood in those days. It uh, There was a rape case going on that my mother had told uh, about some lovers on Lover Lane Uh, two men had attacked a couple and had knocked out the kid and brutally raped the woman twice. And my mother had told me that the doctor said that woman would never be the same again, physically or emotionally. So of course that night when I was sitting and I hear this thump and I look out and I see a leg coming through our dining window, oh, that scared me. Later, though, in school, my mother told me, she said to me, not to disgrace my name. And I knew what she meant by that. She was a policewoman, and she had a reputation to keep, and I had a reputation to keep. And I had received warnings about where to go, what not to do or to do. And when I was older in high school, my mother always clued me in on the people and places and things and cases that were going on and what to watch for, what to look out for. If I was coming back from the uh, studio club where I was singing or learning to sing, I had singing lessons. My mother told me not to walk along near bushes or trees um on the sidewalk. She said to walk in the middle of the street to be aware of who was around. She was overprotective even when she wasn't there and at that particular time which was different from the rapes going on uh you know with the the men coming in into an open window, this particular time when my mother told me there were, uh, uh, there was rapes going on, uh, and to walk in the middle of the street. She had told me that there was a rapist called the monkey man. It was a quote monkey man. That's what he was called. He would jump from a tree onto a woman walking down the sidewalk And he would assault her. So my mother said, just walk down the middle of the street. It's safer. (laughs) But I had a sixth sense, too. Because coming home from school at our apartment, we would call them the flats uh, in those days. We had a flat, you see. Um, This janitor who worked at our flat building, he would stand there. And watch me go inside the building. So I was on my own. Like I said, I was a latchkey child at nine. I took trains and the elevated. I got myself all around Chicago. By nine years old, I could navigate a lot of the city by myself. But, you know, at this point, I was older and much more savvy. But, of course, I wasn't a child anymore. Now I was a young teenage girl anyway this janitor he would stand there and he would watch me go inside our flats to our flat and i didn't like the look in his face i was blessed through the years with this gut feeling this this gut feeling a sixth sense and i listened to it like my mother did she told me to so i told my mother about him she said joey If the front door of the apartment looks jimmied or ajar or something looks funny when you start coming home from school, go to the neighbor and stand in the hallway. Don't go in our apartment. Do you hear me, she said. So... She showed me, too, what it would look like, you know, if somebody had pried or jimmied or maybe was waiting inside and left the door half, maybe not shut, closed. Anyway, one day I looked at the lock, at the the flat door, and it did look, it it looked a little jimmied or something funny. And as I, I walked in, anyway, um... Because I did, I just went through into the flat, and then I stepped into uh, my bedroom, and my window and my bedroom was wide open. Now I had never left my window like that in my bedroom wide open. Uh, so I went through the, the house, the flat, and I quickly went back out, and I went over to Mrs. Brown. And I told her something was wrong. My window was open in my bedroom, wide open, and I didn't leave it that way. And my mother checked with the building owner later that day. And she asked the owner if this janitor had apartment keys to every apartment. And he did. Well, following that incident, the janitor never showed up for work again. And my hunch was right. My hunch was great, (laughs) right? I had a funny feeling. So he must have gotten it, had the key, maybe didn't close the door properly, and he was waiting in the apartment for me. And maybe I said something I can't remember, but maybe he went out through the window and my window and left it open. A lot of things like that happened. I mean, a lot of things happened in Chicago anyway. You always had to be on the watch, especially a young girl like me. I had to be careful. I was pretty and I dressed nicely but a lot of things happen. Of course, when I was sixteen in nineteen thirty seven, I sang at the balls of fire. It was called Balls of Fire. It was a, a club, a nightclub. But the owner did not know I was only sixteen years old. She thought they, they thought I was eighteen. So mother allowed me to to do that, to say that, that I was older. But mother my mother would walk back and forth and back and forth in front of that club, nightclub sort of protection when I would sing. Of course, I was embarrassed, (laughs) but I was glad she was there. But I was thoroughly warned about missing girls, rapes, uh, don't sit in a car in a dark, uh, off the beaten track area. Um, Stay out of lover's lane, that kind of thing. Um, Don't put yourself in a situation where nobody knows where you are. Um, Always go with a group of friends, my mother would say. I studied singing at Joe Keith Studios, but that's the studio I was talking about before when I would come home at night where she told me to watch for things I was studying, I was singing at Joe Key Studios, and I got an audition. But the audition was at a hotel room. It was, the audition was going to take place in a hotel room. And, of course, my mother didn't like that, and I felt very uncomfortable by it. But, I mean, what was I going to do? I wanted a job, singing. So, the hotel room routine... That we came up with was the result of a of a call by Jokey Studios. It was for an interview for a college summer band job. They had bands in those days, you know, uh, uh, like, um, like the Glenn Miller band. I mean, we're talking about bands, jazz bands. So you'd sing, not like a high school band playing. Anyway, long s- story short, they had the summer band job where you could have a singing gig. Well, another girl from the studio was also called to the audition. She had told me that she had had, quote, trouble with this agent. He was handsy in the hotel room. But I didn't. Not only did my mother call the hotel to make sure that the hotel room door was left open uh, during my audition. But I had my over six-foot-tall Egan cousin with me. He waited in the lobby. And we had worked out uh, a little routine. We said, look, if I'm not back in the lobby... In 15 minutes from this audition, up in the hotel room, get up to that room. So, I obviously I didn't come down because the agent sure got mad at me. Oh boy. But when I was 13 to 16 years old, I sang at the Medina Club. Yeah, the Medina Club, 13. My mother would patrol outside while I sang at that club too. But I never appeared at the Three Dances Club. It was an after-hours club. Only attended, you know, if I did, if I ever sang at those, like the Three Dances Club, it was always, if it was after the main gig, after the jam sessions. But all these greats, they would come in after their sessions and they would just, after their gigs, they would just come in and, and they would just, play and have fun, and anybody and everyone could join in if you wanted to. The Medina Club is still going even today, End quote. Historical note, the um, Medina Club was first established in 1924 by a group of Shriners located in suburban Chicago. It was always a foremost goal, uh, it was like a country club. It was a, like the golden standard of country clubs. You can go online and look and take a look at the Medina Club. It's interesting to, when I did it, to, to look at it and realize that Joey Bowden actually sang at the Medina Club. Go online and take a look at the Medina Club now. Uh, to this day, its status as a golf mecca in suburban Chicago provides year-round family-oriented attractions. It's a beautiful club, really. Um, I want to talk about uh, a couple of other things. This audition, the audition where she goes up to the hotel room and uh, the, uh, the talent agent, if you will, is conducting this audition in a hotel room and he gets handsy with the other gal who tries out, but he doesn't get handsy with Joey because the cousin's downstairs and ready to come up and the mother is a police officer. <laughs> you know, I. this is the kind of thing that us ladies must chuckle over when we look back, but it's not so funny, isn't it? I mean, it isn't because the Me Too movement and dare I say it, Harvey Weinstein, these auditions, these meetings, quote unquote, that take place in a hotel room. I don't know on what level men don't understand that conducting an audition in a hotel room is a red flag for a female. Um, But we can see that this was going on even in 1937, the old let's meet in the hotel room for the audition ruse. And here we are, we're in 2020, and women are still being expected to conduct their auditions out of hotel rooms. So I would say that when we're listening to Joey talk about the fact that the agent got very mad at Joey because she wanted the door left open to the hotel room. Her cousin was downstairs, probably came up, and she probably told the agent, my mother is a policewoman. She's a detective here in Chicago. And if you do anything, he was mad. The the agent was mad. He got mad at her. And I don't hear from Joey's testimony that she got the job. Do you? I don't know. I don't think she got that job. Because really, the implied message of meeting the agent for a quote, audition, end quote, in a hotel room has nothing to do with singing talent. It's a message right from the start that the agent is sending to this potential person who's going to be, quote, auditioning, that this is about something much different. So either you were going to be game for that kind of thing, or you weren't. You were not going to go along with it. And if you weren't going to go along with this kind of behavior in those days, and even to this day, as we have discovered from, the testimony of young women in the Harvey Weinstein case. If you didn't comply, you weren't going anywhere in this town, kid. You were done. So maybe Joey Bowden lived with a sense of regret and sadness that she didn't make it big in Hollywood. But at the same time, I think Joey Bowden also knew that there were going to be prices that you had to pay to get ahead and she wasn't really prepared as a young good girl as she called herself to to lower herself to those standards of behavior, that standard expected standard of behavior to audition with a talent agent in a hotel room uh, on his terms to get a singing job so I think she looked back and she was sad about it, but of course, maybe not so sad in terms of of that. That's going to be episode 13 for now. I'm going to uh, pick this up for episode 14 and we will talk more about Joey's life then and her childhood in Chicago. Hope you all are doing well and I'll chat with you all very soon. Have a great day. And take care. Bye-bye.